Good morning. We are, uh, we can count it a blessing that uh, we've have Drew among us this past year has been full of challenge and he's a wizard when it comes to online and uh, all of the uh, Zoom sessions and everything that he's been able to put together. And so it's it's appropriate that he's able to take a, a few days off here at the end of the year and, and recharge his batteries uh, just a bit. So uh, give thanks to and, and for Drew and all of this. You know, it's been a long time. Uh, I think you remember how to do this. I'm feeling I, I want to do this. I want to invite you to stand and let's pass the peace. Remember where you don't touch, don't don't hug, but but look at the person next to you and say the peace of Christ be with you. And then, of course, the obvious response and also with you. Take a moment to do that. <clears throat> And while the folks here are doing that, to the folks watching from home and online, uh, we extend the peace of Christ to you as well. We miss you. Uh, we love you. We look forward to the day when uh, we can be together again and enjoy hugs and and. Uh, see one another with unmasked faces and smiles. Uh, so just know that if you're at home, uh, we think often of you and you remain in our hearts. The lectionary text for this first Sunday after Christmas is a continuation of uh, the text Drew used two weeks ago from Isaiah 61. And we'll begin in Isaiah 61.10, and it continues into chapter 3, if you'd like to, to turn there. If you, if you remember, Isaiah 61 begins with this announcement of God's work and, and God's intended future for the people of Israel. And it's also the same text that Jesus reads in the synagogue uh, that we hear about in chapter 4 of the Gospel of Luke. And, and I'll, I'll give us a, just a really quick review of how that chapter starts, but it, but it says, the spirit of the Lord's anointed me to bring good news, to bind up the broken harbor, to, uh, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, uh, to comfort all who mourn. My people will be called oaks of righteousness. Uh, they'll build up the ancient ruins. They'll repair the ruined cities. Uh, God will faithfully make them whole, will make an everlasting covenant with them. The descendants will be known among the nations, and all who see them shall acknowledge that they are a people whom the Lord has blessed. That's how chapter 61 begins, and it's a message that the people of Israel are more than ready to hear because they're nearing the end of an exile. It's one of those messages where, uh, in our language, we might say, Hallelujah, praise Jehovah. Let the heavens praise his name. And we might sing a rousing chorus of joy to the world. The announcement that Isaiah makes to his people is nothing less than the total salvation of God's people. It's salvation bodily and spiritually, individually and socially, and it's salvation communally as well. It, it's almost, it has this feeling of, of being cosmic in scope. It's, it's, too big to get your arms around. The days are coming 
when they'll put exile behind them. And that which is new will emerge out of the chaos. Israel is going to spring out of the ashes of its destruction and sin into a new kind of Zion, a new kind of priesthood, a new kind of joy, and a renewed covenant relationship with her God. This is good news. We would say this is gospel news. And that brings us to our text this morning, beginning in Isaiah 61.10. Hear the word of the Lord. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, and my whole being shall exult in my God. For he's clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its shoots, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her vindication shines out like the dawn and her salvation like a burning torch. The nations shall see your vindication and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land, the word of God for the people of God. Have you ever tried to describe something that doesn't exist yet? Or how do you describe something what has never been seen or experienced before? What language can you use? You sort of have a couple of options, a couple of choices to do that. You can create new words, new expressions, and hope they convey some of what you're trying to describe. Maybe it's a little bit like the Grinch who stole Christmas when the story describes how the Grinch feels about all the noise of Christmas. And he begins to make up these words. They'll dance with their jing tinglers. They'll blow with their floof floofers. They'll bang their tartukas. They'll spin their trumtukas. They'll slam their sluice slunkas. I have no idea what any of those things are. But by creating new words... Dr. Seuss communicates pretty well, I think, the idea of how much the Grinch despises the noise of Christmas. Another way of describing that which doesn't yet exist is by comparing it to something that already exists and that people are familiar with. And this is a method that Jesus often uses when he wants to describe the kingdom of heaven. He will begin by saying the kingdom of heaven is like, well, it's, uh, it, it's sort of like a hidden treasure. Or it's sort of like a tiny mustard seed. Or the kingdom of heaven is like uh, a fishing net thrown into the sea. 
And Isaiah does something similar, I think, here in our text. After all, what does salvation look like? Can you describe it? What does a world, a community of righteousness look like? Can you even imagine a world without prisoners or oppression or without the brokenhearted? What would that world be like? That world doesn't and hasn't ever existed. So, to borrow from the Apostle Paul, we can only get a dim glimpse of that kind of salvation through a glass darkly, or to make our own comparison, through the fogged up glasses, because we're all wearing the masks of a fallen world. And we can't see through that fog to see what God's salvation actually might be like. So, Isaiah, in, in a kind of both celebration and as a means of comfort, tries to describe what the promises of a new righteousness, a new salvation, and a newness of transformation might look like. So he begins with some comparisons. And in describing this fullness of salvation, Isaiah says, well, it's kind of like the, a garment. It's like a new set of clothes that you've been given. In fact, think of it as a wedding dress and a tuxedo. And imagine all the excitement and the anticipation that comes with being dressed in those kinds of clothes. The salvation of God is like that. It's a wedding day, only better. Israel's all decked out in the joy and the beauty of salvation, ready to begin a new life in relationship with her lover, God. And Israel must have said, well, okay, that sounds good, Isaiah, but we're here in exile. Can you say some more about that? And Isaiah says, well, okay, think of it this way. What God is about to do for Israel is like a garden bursting into life. And of course, Israel's been compared to a garden before, because if you turn back to Isaiah chapter 5, we find what's called the Song of the Vineyard. And it tells about God clearing the land and planting a garden, planting a vineyard, and then coming and expecting to find in that garden the fruit, the harvest of righteousness and justice, and what God finds instead in this garden, instead of justice, he sees bloodshed. And instead of righteousness, he hears the cries of the oppressed. And so God has to clean the garden out and essentially start over, make a fresh start. All of this in chapter 5 is an embarrassing chapter in Israel's history. But now Isaiah is going to redraw the picture. He's going to take them back to the garden. And this time, it's going to be a different scene. The cries of oppression and justice are replaced with new plantings of righteousness and praise. The soil of Israel's life is turned, and within them there is the hope and future of a fresh harvest of God's shalom, of God's peace, of God's justice, 
of right relationships that evokes praise even from the surrounding nations. And Isaiah professes this sense of awe and wonder that the ground of Israel's sin will be cracked open by the new sprout of righteousness. And Isaiah says Israel in God's hand is a garden with a new planting of God's grace reinvigorating the barren soil of their sin so that the fruit of wholeness and life can emerge from the ground. And this can only be the work of God. The old brokenness is made into a new wholeness, a new Israel, a new place of thriving and growth, a new experience of relationship and equity. Israel will become the garden of God's nurture and delight. And why all this newness? Why all this attention and care, whether it be wedding clothes or vegetable garden? And Isaiah says it's for the sake of the nations, people. It's for the sake of the world that the world might know and take delight in God's loving, nurturing movement toward creation. And Israel must have said, well, that sounds too, that sounds almost too good, Isaiah. We're not sure we have it. Uh, can you say more? And Israel, or Isaiah then, launches into chapter 62. Well, he says, what it's really talking about is transformation. A, a, a transformation, a metamorphosis, metamorphosis of heart so all-encompassing that you're going to have to new, have a new name. The old one won't do. It's going to require a new vocabulary. A new word's going to have to be created to describe this. This is more than a new set of clothes. This is more than a diet from the garden of righteousness. This is world-altering, community-building, heart-changing work whose results are so radical that the old name, the old language, the old identity just doesn't work anymore. This whole affair requires a new language, a new way of speaking about it. It's the vindication of Israel. The vindication, uh, to be vindicated means you've been shown right. Israel's going to be shown right, that she had the right God, that she's in the right relationship with that God, that she is God's chosen people for the sake of the world. She'll be vindicated and shown right in all of those things. And to envision the glory of Israel or in Jerusalem is to envision the rule of Yahweh fully established. It's the kingdom of God come near, if you will. And in this, Israel's slate is wiped clean. The past gives way to a new future. And this kingdom rule of God is the glory and the destiny of Jerusalem. And it calls for a new way of speaking about life and a new identity that only God can give. Formerly, your identity, Isaiah tells them, 
within yourselves, how you thought of yourself, and to the people around you as well, you were the forsaken ones. You were the ones living on Desolation Street. Yeah, Israel said, you're right. We're the people Yahweh forgot. We're the people who are desolate, without hope, without a future. We're sitting here in exile. And that was more often than not Israel's identity. We're the ones who lost our nation and our God. But Isaiah tells them, God's salvation says no more of that. Your new God-given identity is my delight is in her. And the land itself will be called married. The Hebrew word is the word Beulah. And if you have a certain age, maybe you remember the old gospel song. Oh, Beulah land, sweet Beulah land. That's where that song comes from is the land is married. In the day of salvation, this is how Israel will come to think of herself. The land will be secured, protected, provided for, embraced, blessed. Israel will go by her God's pet name for her. My delight is in her. She'll live out of the identity of who she is. And she'll conduct herself among the nations to the extent that even they will begin to identify her as the people in whom Yahweh delights. And because of that new identity, she'll no longer live for herself, but for the one who takes great delight in her. So these are the images that Isaiah uses to describe for his people what the salvation of God might look like. And I think these images can still be helpful for us. God gifts a community of people with the garments of salvation. And we call that community the church. And a church clothed, wrapped in salvation is a beautiful thing. And that church can live not in the past, but with the joy in anticipation of a secured future with her lover, God. But if we're honest, it might be hard to always keep that in mind. Because sometimes salvation seems far off. And sometimes church is a hard thing to live in and with and to understand. So in difficult times, Isaiah suggests, why don't you think of yourself as being in the garden of God's salvation? Here the soil of our lives and our life together is being broken up, overturned, emended with the grace of God's Spirit. And let's not doubt, that can be painful work. It can be slow work. Work that requires patience as God, ever the faithful gardener, works within a community, a people, a church, to produce a new harvest 
of righteousness that springs out of the old soil. We can live in hope in the difficult times. We can watch for the first sprouts of spring in our lives, helping us leave behind the barren hardships of a long winter. And finally, sometimes within a church, a new identity is just what we need. We can get locked into an identity that longs for how things used to be. Or we can get locked into an identity of how we might wish things were. If we just had this, or if we just had that, or if we didn't have this or that. Or it can fixate on an identity that's more secular than spiritual, more American than Christian, more human-focused than Christ-centered. But God's salvation visited upon us, reorients us, turns us from those false identities, and shows us who we are in Christ. It gives us a new name. It gives us a new identity. It gives us a new way of seeing ourselves in relationship to one another and in relationship to our neighbors. It's a powerful thing for a church to know itself as the one in whom God delights. And a church whose identity is based in the saving work of God in Christ will always reflect that salvation in character and in conduct, in prayer and in purpose, in resolve and in relationship, in work and in worship. Why do we do these things? Because this is who we are. How do we live? Because this is who we are in Christ. Why do you cross the street? Because this is who we are. Why do you care about school children? Because this is who we are in Christ. This is our God-given identity. We've been clothed for it. We've been nurtured as a garden for this work. And we've been given a name that there is a God who delights in us. When a church, as I said, always through a glass darkly, begins to see and to experience and to live into and out of all of these salvation images from old Isaiah, then as Isaiah tells his own people, God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up from among the nations. So, as those in whom God takes great delight, we say, Hallelujah, praise Jehovah. And we sing, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her King.